a quick additional announcement that you might want to add to your bulletins in your prayer time. Uh, Gary Kay is in the hospital again having some heart issues and I, sub I believe some breathing problems as well. He's doing okay, but they're running tests, so be in prayer for Gary Kay if you would please. Uh, this morning is a special service for us as a church family. I think we recognize that as believers, but we're going to witness four individuals that have been drawn into the grace of God's redemption in faith in Christ, and they're going to go into the waters in baptism making profession of that faith. And this is a unique experience for the church. It should be a blessed time for us as a church community because we get to listen to and witness four individuals and their individual stories of how God drew them into his grace. As we open up the scripture, we see the description of that grace. We see the blessedness of God's redemption. We see the work and the power of God's grace to redeem souls. But as we hear personal testimonies, we witness God working with our own circumstances, our own lives, and drawing us into that grace one by one individually. So this is a time of refreshment and encouragement to the church. It is also a time for the gospel to be proclaimed on that individual basis. So this is a joy that we have this morning in watching and listening to four individuals that are going to give their testimonies and do so in the waters of baptism. And with that in mind, what I want to share this morning has to do with baptism itself. And I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 6. Before we do, when we extend an invitation for believers to be baptized, the first thing we do is sit down with that believer and we do an interview or what I call an interview. And it's because of this that we ask them to share their gospel testimony with us. At this church, we only baptize true gospel believers or those who make a true profession of faith. And therefore, it is essential that we agree first and foremost on what the gospel is. So we hear them share their testimony of faith, what they believe the gospel is, and even how God led them to that gospel. So of first importance, we must agree on the gospel itself. But secondly, in this interview, we go over what baptism is. One of the things we encourage these folks to do is to invite their family and friends, <clears throat> even their neighbors. And some of those individuals that they're invited here, they may ask, well, what's this about? Why are you getting baptized? And we want them to be able to answer biblically, this is what we're doing. This is why I'm being baptized, and this is what it means. So we go over some essentials about what baptism is and what it means. And I want to just open by <clears throat> sharing two of those three verses that I have used in the past two baptisms. One of the passages, in fact, the first passage I will take these folks to is Matthew. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, what we often refer to as the Great Commission. And it carries this name because Jesus gave instruction to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. He'd gone to the cross, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, spent 40 days uh, showing himself to his disciples, teaching them and to others. And then the scripture says he went up onto a mountain with his disciples just before he ascended to the Father, and he gave them this instruction from Matthew chapter 28, instruction that was for the apostles, but it is also for the church. 
Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that last statement, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, means this is a commission that is continuing until Christ returns. That's why we're baptizing today. What is emphasized in this passage, though, is that baptism, first and foremost, is an act of obedience to the authority of Jesus Christ over their lives, over the lives of believers. And not only that, but baptism becomes the testimony of the believer that Jesus Christ is the Lord of their life. The person being baptized is saying that they, they've been taught, they will be taught, they're, they're willing to be taught all that Jesus has commanded with the intention of obeying those commands because of the authority God the Father has given to his son. So if someone were to ask one of these folks, why are you being baptized? They can answer, because this is what the Son of God has commanded me to do. And I am committed to living in obedience to all that he directs in my life. It is an act, first and foremost, of obedience. The second passage that I share with those that are desiring to be baptized comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and verse 39. And just to set the stage, this is where Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit the day of Pentecost, as well as were the other apostles. And Peter stood up spirit-filled and preached his first sermon to those that had gathered around in the city of Jerusalem. And at the end of that sermon where Peter was opening up Jesus Christ, who he was, the Jesus that they had just crucified, and he explained to them, this is why Jesus went to the cross. And after he was done with his sermon, this gospel sermon, the people, some of them at least, cried out, what shall we do, brethren? What is it we're supposed to do next? And this is the answer that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you... Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This passage not only reminds us that baptism is again a response of obedience to all that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, Matthew 28, but it is also a public declaration of the gospel and of the Savior. And the individuals being baptized today are going to do just that. They're going to stand up and they're going to make a public declaration that they belong to Christ by faith and because of the graciousness of God to save. Believers are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Peter said, because of the forgiveness of sins that Christ had accomplished for his people on the cross. The idea of repentance here, as Peter proclaimed, is that a sinner has heard the gospel preached, they've come under the work of God, calling that person by faith to his son, and they're turning from the old life of sin and turning to the forgiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a faith in Christ that not only finds forgiveness of sin, but it is also a faith in Christ that will follow him and no longer pursue a life of wickedness. And that again is what repentance is. It's a turning from that life of sin and a turning to Christ the Savior to walk in his ways. 
Baptism is a public declaration of one's repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. These ones going into the waters of baptism are going to publicly declare to you, all that are gathered here today, that they now belong to Christ. Their sins are forgiven, not on their own merits, but on the merits of the Savior who went to the cross for them. This morning, I want to share from the third of those three passages. In the past two baptisms, I've used those first two passages. The text that I want to use this morning, naturally, will be the third passage, which is Romans chapter 6. So if you will take your Bibles and join, join me there, Romans chapter 6, the main text I want to point out is verse 3 and 4. But I'm going to speak from verse 1 to verse 7 of Romans chapter 6. And I'd like to read that now if you'll follow along with me. What shall we say then, Paul writes? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Our Father in heaven, as we dive into this passage, and as we give witness to these four that you have claimed for yourself through faith in Christ, we pray that you will give to us a new, a fresh understanding of the power of our God to save, the power of the gospel, the power of the cross. And with that understanding of that power, that we will be energized and encouraged to share and to live Christ more fully in our communities and our families. We know that to do so will oftentimes be an offense and it will bring opposition at times. So we need from you a fresh courage as well to stand for the name of Jesus Christ. These four that are going to be baptized, they need a fresh courage as well this morning just to stand before us and make a profession of faith. So bless them as they do that. Fill them with your presence. And I pray that you will encourage us as well as we look again at the precious gospel that has claimed our lives for eternity, that has forgiven us of sins, cleansed us to the point that we are now acceptable before a holy God. The righteousness of your Son is now upon those who believe. So you don't look at our sins any longer. They've been atoned for by the blood of your Son. But when you look upon those that believe in your Son, you see the righteousness of Him who gave His life for us. This is an hour, Father, for us to be filled with worship and praise and gratitude. And we do so now this morning. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Paul begins in this sixth chapter, and I want to draw your attention to verse 1 and 2. And there are three parts that I want to consider to this passage, beginning with the reality that those who come to faith are now dead to sin. Paul begins by addressing a problem that may arise out of the proclamation of the gospel of grace. If you scan back into chapter 5, Paul has been saying to those that he's writing to in the church in Rome that the cross, the sacrifice of Christ for the sinner or on behalf of the sinner has made them righteous. All sins have been forgiven. And it's not by their own merits that this has been accomplished. 
It is the merits of Christ alone. That's why it is all of grace. And Paul knows and anticipates some are going to respond to this, especially the Jews who held fast to their own works of the law. Wait just a minute, Paul. Are you saying that all sins are forgiven by what Christ has done? That we're not doing anything of our own? Well, shouldn't we then go on sinning so grace looks all that much bigger and better? That was the reasoning that Paul anticipated in asking the question in verse 1 of chapter 6. The law of Moses, Paul had already shown, had come to expose sin. And the more sin is exposed, the bigger it is. The more aware we are, the more visible it is. So should we not continue sinning based on this theory, Paul, of your grace? Go on sinning so that grace is more magnified. But we note here, Paul answers this emphatically, absolutely not. The saving grace of God through Christ increased all the more in eradicating sin. In other words, those who come under the saving work of the cross cannot continue to commit more sin because God's grace is going to cover it. Nor is there too great a sin for grace to cover. Where sin increases or is more visible, or is greater in size or scope, grace increases all the more in that God's people are still fully forgiven. This is the message that Paul is giving here. And he anticipates, knowing that people are going to pervert this truth of grace, Paul asks the question that he knows is going to be on their minds. Should we sin so that grace would increase? And the answer you and I know, absolutely not. May it never be that we think such a thing, Paul answers. And then Paul asks a question that is really a statement setting the stage for his doctrinal presentation here. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The truth that is implied here is that believers have died to sin. And because they have died to sin, they should not continue to practice it. But what does Paul mean when he says that we have died to sin? We know that at the very least, it means that a true Christian cannot continue to live as they once did. They cannot continue in habitual rebellion against the laws of Christ. They can live no longer after the sinful patterns or the wrongful patterns of the world, nor can they continue to pursue their own passions or lusts of the flesh. A change has taken place under grace by which no one can follow the former patterns. It is what he calls repentance. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 puts this this way. Paul writes again, For I am confident of this very thing that he, God, who began a good work in you, will complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. That means the moment we come to faith, A change has been started in us, and God is going to keep working that change, accomplishing that change progressively throughout our lives all the way until Christ returns. So that means, Paul says, we cannot continue to live as we once did. God has brought a change. The moment we became justified by faith and through his grace, we are now bearing the righteousness of Christ by faith. And this justification that has been the work of God begins a work of sanctification that God continues to work upon the believers, whereby the Christian is made progressively more holy as God is holy, more like Christ and less like the old self. We continue to sin on occasion, 
but we no longer are in bondage to sin such that we are held captive to do no other. Believers have come under the ministry of the Holy Spirit whereby we live in repentance and progressively we are sanctified to sin less and less. Why? Because the believer has died to sin. Donald Gray Barnhouse, and I put this on your note sheet so that you can follow along. He wrote in his commentary on Romans and chapter 6, Holiness starts where justification finishes. And if holiness does not start, we have the right to suspect that justification never started either. What he's saying is the moment we come to faith, God does the work of justification. We can't justify ourselves, but God will justify us by faith as we place our trust and confidence in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. And once that justification is declared, to the one that has come by faith, the work of sanctification or making us holy begins. And if that work is not apparent, if that work is not taking place, it means justification never happened either. These ones who are being baptized this morning are giving testimony to us that by faith in Christ, they're no longer held captive to sin's control. Why? Again, because the true believer has died to sin. Second, as we move further into our text, and again, verse 3 and 4 are the main part of what I want to share this morning. Those that are receiving Christ by faith and giving testimony this morning, all that have received Christ by faith, at that moment are made one with Christ. The truth that Paul expresses in this passage is really the heart of the believer's salvation, where once because of sin we are separated from God, now, by faith in his Son, we are made one with God. To be united with God's Son is to be united with God himself. And verses 3 to 4 describe the believer's union with Jesus Christ. But the striking part of verse 3 and 4 in Paul's description of this union is that he doesn't use the word union or united. Not immediately. Rather, he uses the word what? Baptism. You have been baptized into Christ. And that word in the Greek, baptizo, means to submerge or to make fully wet. It is the word whelmed, or where we get the word overwhelmed in water. Though the word baptized is being used here, Paul is not directly referring to the ordinance or the ritual of water baptism that we're going to witness this morning. His main point is, and he's using a descriptive word to make this main point, is that believers have been fully immersed into Christ, fully united with him. And that's why baptism, the word baptism is used here. We're not partially connected with Christ. We are fully immersed into Christ. It is the picture of baptism that best describes this union. And in doing so, as Paul uses that word baptism to describe this union, he gives us a greater understanding of why Jesus instructs us to be baptized when we become his disciples, taking us right back to Matthew 28. Why did Jesus direct, why did he command baptism to those that are made disciples? Paul tells us here, it's because of this description of our union with Christ. Verse 3 expresses this understanding in the form of a question. Do you not know that all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. We can rightly here exchange the word baptized for the word united. Do you not know that all of us who have been united into Christ or been made one with Christ or fully immersed into Christ have been united in his death? This exchange of wording here provides a visible picture of what takes place the moment a believer comes to faith in Christ and in his gospel. Something takes place here that Paul is describing. And this picture is a work of the Holy Spirit upon the repenting, believing sinner. It's a work that the Spirit of God does to all of us who believe. As Jesus was nailed to a cross, our sins were placed on him. And God the Father turns his wrath against his son. He judges his own son because of our sins. And Jesus fully accepted the punishment for our sins. He then surrendered his life up, dying to make full payment for sins. When the believer comes to faith in Christ, they become one with the Savior in a spiritual sense. He becomes our substitute in making payment for sin. The old man of sin dies. It's done away with. And verse 4 picks up on this picture. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Not the ritual, but buried with him through this union. We've been united with Christ, so fully immersed into his death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The dead body of Jesus was placed into the grave as is the old person of sin that we once were. The moment we came to faith, we died to the old person of sin. It was buried in the grave. Why? Because we're united with Christ. He took our sins on the cross. He became my substitute and took the judgment for my sins. And the believer in this baptism imagery is to see himself as now dead to sin just as Jesus died and was buried in the tomb carrying our sins and making full payment for them. And then in a burst of triumph, Jesus rises from the grave through the glory of the Father. Notice how Paul picks up on that. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the glory of God's power, his perfections, and his purposes come to life. Jesus rises in glory and newness of life, which represents there is a significant change here, a glorified body that even his own disciples did not first recognize on that first resurrection morning. They did not know Jesus because his appearance had been dramatically changed. There is a picture here for us. And Paul brings that to light in Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. The believer is so united with Christ that we have been dramatically changed. He died with Christ. The old person of sin, the person that came to faith, died with Christ to that old person of sin just as Christ died bearing that person's sins. But like Christ, the believer rises in glory, the glory of a person forgiven and delivered from the power of sin. As we see verse 4 concluding, now in union with Christ, they walk in newness of life. Nothing is the same. We're walking in newness of life. 
I love how Kenneth Wiest puts this in his word study of Romans chapter 6. On the back of your bulletin, you'll see this quote as well. Kenneth Wiest writes, The Christian's will has been made absolutely free. Before salvation, it was not free so far as choosing between good and evil is concerned. It was enslaved to the evil nature. But now it stands poised between the evil nature and the divine nature with the responsibility to reject the behests of the former and to obey the exhortations of the latter. To constantly say no to the former and say yes to the latter becomes a habit and then the victorious life has been reached. That is an expression of what Paul is describing here in verse 3 and 4. Once again, Christians are not people who never sin. But their will is no longer enslaved to sin as it once was. They have been enabled to say no to sin and yes to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the sanctifying work of God upon all who believe. And as the believer grows in Christ more and more, this response to sin and righteousness becomes a habit. What Vist calls the victorious life, Paul describes as walking in newness of life. The believer has been united with Christ in this way. And this picture of our union with Christ also dramatically describes for us the ritual of baptism and what it is meant to complain or to proclaim, not complain, but to proclaim. I mean, of all the, the things that Jesus could have asked us to do once we come to faith, why this? Why submerging in water? Paul is telling us it pictures what Christ has done, and that we've now become united with him. It's symbolic of something that is dramatic, and it is majestic, and it's glorious. As we witness these four believers enter the water and give their testimony to you all this morning, they are going to be fully immersed into the water in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This graphically represents that in coming to faith in Christ, they've died to the old self, like Christ died and was put into the grave bearing our sins, so the believer has died to that old person of sin. Christ has made it so. Christ did not remain in the grave, though, did he? Three days later, he arose from the dead, and we don't leave the people in the water. We bring them back up, declaring we've risen with Christ. We're so united with Christ that we rise again in glory and in newness of life. This is the picture of baptism. And you can see why Jesus ordered, instructed his people. You become a disciple of mine, you get baptized. It's a proclamation, not of me. It's a proclamation of Christ and what he did on the cross, the grave, and the resurrection. It is a picture of something. It not only represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it rep represents also what his resurrection accomplishes for his redeemed people. They died to the old person of sin. They're raised up in newness of life. The full submersion and lifting up of the believer demonstration is for all of us to see what the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Savior has accomplished for his people that come by faith. And therefore, baptism is a picture of the believer's union with Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. It puts a depth of meaning to this water baptism ritual, doesn't it? It gets a picture to us of what no believer can truly deny. 
I've died with Christ. I'm also raised with him. And in verses 5, 6, and 7, Paul completes this picture with almost a victory cry for the believer. We are no longer slaves to sin. When these four are baptized and they're coming up out of the water, they are making this victory cry to all of us. I am no longer a slave to sin. And it doesn't happen there in the pool of water. That victory happened the moment they came to faith in Christ. This water baptism is only a picture of that. It's only symbolic of something. Paul emphasizes that coming to faith in Jesus Christ takes on, notice he uses the word likeness here, the likeness of his death and resurrection. Because believers neither die for their own sin, nor are they raised up to newness of life by their own merits. By faith, they only take on the likeness of what the Savior has done for them. And by this imagery comes with the knowledge or the assurance that because we've been crucified with Jesus, we are now slaves to sin no longer. The one who has died with Christ by faith in his gospel is now freed from sin. Paul makes this victory cry several times in verses 5, 6, and 7. And the beauty of this gospel is that our works have not freed us from our sins because they could never accomplish that. Not our good intentions, not our best efforts, not our church membership, not even being baptized. The picture of water baptism is that only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ could set us free from the penalty and the bondage of our sins. We must be united to Christ by faith, and it is only by God's grace that we are set free. And this brings us back to Paul's opening argument. We most certainly are saved by grace. We loudly proclaim that. It is all of God's grace. And the more we know of our sinfulness, the greater the work of grace is. But having this rich picture of our union with Christ through the imagery of baptism, we can never conclude that we should continue to sin so that grace would increase. How shall we who have died to sin with Christ continue to live in sin? Because as the believer says with Paul, in Christ, we are no longer a slave to sin. We can't continue in sin. We will witness the testimony of a believer's union, four of them this morning. And what the full immersion and the raising up of these four out of the water will give testimony to is that not only have they been forgiven and cleansed of all their sins, but they have been set free to sin no more. It is therefore their testimony that they're going to walk in newness of life as those who have been set free of sin. And that's what all of us as believers hope to do. We're committing our lives to go and sin no more because we're no longer slaves to it. This should be the newfound passion and devotion that these four are giving testimony to, but it should be the devotion and passion of every one of us this morning that are claiming Jesus Christ by faith. Let's pray together, and then I'm going to ask these four to join me in the back as we prepare for baptism. Father, we thank you that you are a God that saves by grace alone. We recognize that because of our sinful state, our depravity, we could never save ourselves we could never satisfy the holy demands of a God that is holy, holy, and holy. But we praise you this morning. We give worship and thanksgiving to you because you made a way. You made salvation possible, not through our merits, 
but the merits of your son. And as these four give witness to that gospel of grace, we pray that you will free their voices, free their hearts to speak of you with joy this morning as they proclaim they too have been brought into the precious gift of faith by God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God of great power to save sinners. We give you worship, we give you praise and thanksgiving this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Those four will now come up and join me in the back offices if they haven't done so already. Nope, there you are. All right, go ahead and stand with me.